Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. Thanks everyone for watching. We're here today with Lou Mormon and Nick Honiger from Soilworks. They reached out recently as they had acquired Pasture Map, which is a livestock management app. So hi, Nick and Lou. How are you? Great. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us. So this is the first time I'm co-hosting with my colleague, Lauren, who is there with one of her cows behind her. So it's a special episode of Future Food. So as we get going, what did you both have for breakfast? I don't eat breakfast. I had coffee. (laughs) You had coffee. This Uh, is becoming a very common answer, actually. uh, I had a smoothie, so maybe maybe just as boring. Smoothie and coffee is my (laughs) my jam. How would you describe your food preferences? I kind of got on this journey a little bit because of my changing food diet. My wife wrestled with cancer about seven years ago successfully. In that process, she became obsessed with the quality of food, type of cancer she had. There weren't really any drugs that would help with it. And so she said, the only drug that I can change is the food I eat. And she became very much of a low-carb, low-sugar, grass-fed meat, vegetable eater. And it's rubbed off on me. So I would say I do my best to adhere to a lot of those principles but we also live in San Antonio, Texas, and we have the world's greatest Mexican food. So it's a, it's a real weakness of mine. <laughs> no, I would, I would say Nick? similar. My weakness is definitely tacos, but especially being in San Antonio. But typically, I'm more of a kind of a similar kind of diet as Lou, I'd say. A bit of a, a health nut. I've got an immune disorder, so that's kind of <laughs> got to eat healthy. Otherwise, I get sick. It's kind of how that one runs down. So a lot mm-hmm. of smoothies and fun stuff like that. And Lauren, since we have you here... What about you? What oh, do you I'm have being, a breakfast? I'm being put on the hot spot. I eat a very standard big farmer breakfast because some days that's the last time I eat until it's dark. And so that's whether I'm hungry or not, it has to happen because if I get to two o'clock and I haven't eaten yet, it's bad for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what is a big exactly. farmer breakfast? Oh, I love the idea of it. Eggs, bacon. Eggs, yeah. yeah scrambled eggs, Little bacon, brunch. yeah, oatmeal. Honestly, just, you know, whatever I can stuff down in 20 minutes. Pile on the pancakes, you know? Yeah, that takes too much time. Like that's a lot of <laughs> finesse. I got to measure things. It, I don't, I don't, I don't want to measure anything. So it's really just kind of raid the fridge, whatever sounds good that morning. When it's really hot, like right now in Arkansas, it's already close to 90 in the morning. And so it's hard to eat a ton and go out and work. So it's more things like yogurt, smoothie. Smoothies are great. Dump it all in a blender. There you go. Good to go. Food on the go. So, but yeah, I'm a big breakfast person. And then a lot of times I don't eat dinner because I'm just so smoked by the end of the day. I'm so hot and cranky that I just don't, I can't cook. Mm-hmm. Right. I love a farmer breakfast. I used mm-hmm. to have one, I go and stay with my godmother and she was married to a dairy farmer. And in the mornings, it was just the best thing ever sitting around with all the, with all the yeah. dairy farmers that just come in from milking. I'd have fresh milk, but just being cleaned and cooled. Yeah, There'd always be some kind of gammon steak and baked beans and black pudding and all sorts of yummy things like that. Great. Okay. So just kind of continuing on that trend of thought about, you know, how you think about food. We like to ask this question to all our guests to kind of think ahead to 2050, what you think the food system is going to look like? What will be a couple of things that may have changed from today? And you can be aspirational with that, or you can, you know, be realistic. I'll give you sort of a high level 
shift that I think will happen. We're in a 50-year period where we've been thinking about food from a food security standpoint. So we've got a regulatory regime that is obsessed with commodity crops and we're producing calories at an extraordinarily cheap rate. And from that, we're building an amazing amount of processed foods. And as a result, we're becoming very unhealthy. And a lot of that is because in the 60s and 70s, we had food security problems and laws change very slowly and our education changes very slowly. I also think we had heart disease issues and got a little confused about what causes heart disease and the nutrition guidance that's out there, I think is flawed and we're learning about that. So I think what's going to happen in the next 50 years is that the food system is going to be built around health and food as medicine is going to be I think, a dominant trend and our society, all societies are falling prey to crushing healthcare costs. We have environmental problems. And our food system's got just an extraordinary role to play in this. And I think we're getting educated on how we can build more nutrient-dense food that heals the planet. And I think we have to move a lot of our consumer desires towards that, which I think is actually leading and that's already starting to happen. But it's got to follow by the businesses that are built to support that. And also our government has to respond. But I think 50 years from now, I think that will be the main driver of how we think about the food system is what are the right foods to eat to stay healthy and to take care of our planet. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's great. And it's, and it's something we're, we're talking about a lot more, obviously, with COVID-19, gathering data around how it's impacting people with metabolic disorders worse off than, than it is others that are more healthy. And apparently only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. I'm not sure right. if you knew that statistic. Yeah, yeah. yeah obesity rates have, have gone basically from you know the low teens to over 40%. And this is in the last 30 years. So this is not something we should blame people for. We have a food system that guarantees it. And it's going to keep getting worse if we don't fix it. So where does regenerative agriculture come in then into that food as medicine, healthy food paradigm? You know, look, I think that that's at the core of what the regenerative promise is. It's about working in harmony with nature to build nutrient-dense food while creating and enriching soil. So we end up with better food, with land that is healthier, and we sequester carbon to address some of the carbon problems. So it's, it's one of these incredible win-win-wins in my mind. We're pouring 5 billion pounds of pesticides on our planet every year. And that is poisoning us. It's killing insects. It's killing birds. And it's destroying the soil and the soil's ability to sequester carbon and sequester biomass. So regenerative agriculture is about fixing this. It's about getting back to how understanding how nature works and working in harmony with it. And, you know, it's been around for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I think that the techniques are very proven. I really do. I think they've been proven at a small scale. But I think the time is now for it to become a mainstream movement and for the food system to be resigned around it. And I think that's why we're so excited about Passion Map too, because that can really be a, a tool we leverage to get people into regenerative ranching and, and get the data to validate the efforts and, and show what it can do. Lauren, did you want to pick up on the regenerative conversation or maybe we'll ask you about how you got you know, into this from, from ScaleWorks? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you my journey. I mean, look, I am a business person. Me and my partner, Ed Byrne, started ScaleWorks. We're, I've been in tech for the last 20 plus years, working in a number of companies. And then we started ScaleWorks, which we own and operate software companies in Texas. And uh, we've been at it for almost five years. And we've had a lot of success. We're enjoying it. We had a lot of fun. 
but we've just gotten really passionate about regenerative agriculture. And one of the ways that it happened to me is I happened to buy some land north of town here in Texas. And the land had been overgrazed for years and years and years. And it was obvious and it was not in great shape. And as soon as I got on the land, I took all the animals off and sort of said, all right, I'm just going to let nature come back. And one of the things I very quickly realized is that nature does come back, but it also needs animals to stay vibrant and alive. And I ended up with grass piling up and becoming dormant, just dead. And there's a fire hazard and the ecosystem wasn't coming back to life. And I was sort of going, what do I do? How do I, you know, what is the right balance to strike? And actually, my partner said, you got to read some of these books about regenerative agriculture. He had read them. He's from Ireland. He had spent some summers on the farm and he'd become obsessed with it because he had been doing some research on how to build the world's perfect steak, which is a whole separate side topic. I read a couple books. I mean, I read Alan Savory, Joel Salatin, Greg Judy, Gabe Brown, all these books, and really became really obsessed with this concept. And I hired Greg Judy to come to my place and develop a grazing plan. And we got going. And I've now hired full-time folks that are my partners in the business. And they live at the farm. And we run cows, sheep, pigs, pasture-raised pigs. And then we do uh, chicken and duck eggs. And so I'm living it. I see the difference it's making to my land. I love the food I'm eating. I know it's healthy. And you know, I've just seen the potential of this is just so positive for so many people in terms of all the things we're trying to accomplish in terms of rural economics to healing the planet. So it's pretty exciting. That's great. I'm going to try and convince you to add goats to that lineup by the end of this. Well, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned we're talking about it. We have some species that we would love to put the goats on so <laughs> to, to help us trim it back. So yeah, we're, we're considering goats. That's good. That's great. So as you dove into this, you know, given that you don't have a huge farm background. What was the biggest light bulb moment for you as you're reading all these books, digging into this? Was there just a moment where you were totally convinced, a tipping point, a huge aha moment? I think when you see some people like Joel Salatin give demonstrations and show what's happened to their land versus what the land looked like before. Greg Judy is another person who, whose videos I've seen, when you see it with your eyes around how land can be transformed and you're doing it with no chemicals. And so you know the food's better and you know the animals are happier. And you have these farmers who are finally making money for the first time. It's just one of these things where at first I kind of was going, I got to poke holes in this. There's got to be a catch. There's got to be a problem. Right. And the only one I've really been able to find is to convince people to move to it. And there's some capital costs involved in moving to it. And then I realized that I don't have a lot new to add that those guys who I mentioned can't add except business sense is that the core, I'm a business person. And I think that what we try to do is build businesses that can help scale this movement. Because if it's just going to be at farmer's markets forever, it's not going to make the impact it needs to make. And so our hope is to figure out where are unique places where we can bring our skills and capabilities to help drive scalable business models to help make this a mainstream movement. And so we're looking for places where we can do that. And I'll leave all the ecological deep science and soil work and to the farmers I work with and to all the folks I've mentioned a couple times before. So, but I'm going to keep learning. I love it. I love being out on the land. I, as I say, I'm, I'm the owner of the ranch, but I'm also a part-time ranch hand. When they need help, I'll come out there and put up fences and, and move the animals and do things. But I'm always going to be an amateur at that. 
So as you've come up with your investment thesis, you know, around scaling and scaling is one of the biggest criticisms that I think we hear against regenerative agriculture is that this will never scale to feed enough people. How are you building that into your investment thesis in an offensive way or defensive way, trying to figure out what models are going to scale? We know that every aspect of the value chain is going to have to be impacted at some point. And I think there's a lot of farmers out there, they're educating other farmers on how to do this. And slowly but surely, people are getting there. But what we hope to do is there's still a set of tools that farmers need, whether it's things like pasture map, so they can easily manage the land they have, but even potentially financing models or insurance models or other things that sort of are are better fit to a non-commodity crop system. I think there's a bunch of places where the farmer needs help. I certainly think in the supply chain, we've got major problems. And I think that's been exposed through COVID. We have a highly centralized processing model, particularly when, when it comes to animals. And this is not resilient. And it certainly doesn't help the small farmer in terms of being forced to deal with the giant oligopic meat companies. So I think we need to figure out a, the economic model to get processing closer to the farms. And that's an area where we have a real interest and we're looking at different ways that that could be done. And then finally, you know, the consumer has to become aware of this. I think if we could have our way, we would hope that regenerative would be as well known as organic in 10 years time. And, you know, I mean, organic market share has gone through the roof. Walmart's the largest seller of organics today, which I think is a sign of progress. But I think regenerative is taking it to a whole nother level. And what we would hope to do is to, to make it a mainstream food that's available to all. I mean, I think for now, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be a premium product as we change the value chain over time. And it's certainly not going to be just us. It's going to take tons of people. We hope there's tons of capital that comes into this space to help change this value chain to where the prices can come down and we can get more and more people eating this high quality food. That processing piece is huge for us. Our processors sent out an email saying we're booked until 2021 and we're not going to process sheep and goats effective immediately. And I feel your pain. We sold everything we got and we're waiting on our processing slots as well. So it's a problem and there's going to have to be some regulatory change, I think, because I do think there's some ways to do a bunch of different processing models, but it's highly, highly, highly regulated for some good reasons. But I think we've got to find more flexibility. I mean, just the same way we've done telehealth and all these kinds of things really quickly because of COVID, I hope we can look at some of the ways that we've made processing expensive and cumbersome and uh, innovate there. And that's something that we want to help push on. Have you ever come across... I can't remember the name of the company now, that mobile abattoir that Provenier. was in Provenir. Yeah. I mean, what do you think of that as a concept? I think it's great. I mean, look, I think it could work. We're talking to some people about those types of models. I do think the one piece of it that doesn't scale is the regulatory piece. If you've got to have a USDA regulator for every kill and every set of processing, and you're only doing six animals a day, I mean, the costs are never going to make sense. You know, or six to 10 animals a day, or whatever it might be in terms of cattle. So I think we got to find ways to the pieces that don't work in small scale. We got to figure out how to break up those costs and not lose the the important part of the regulations. And I so I think there's going to have to be some innovation there. And I think it's possible to do it through remote or video or lots of different ways that it can be done. But we got we need to see some innovation there. But I, I think mobile laboratories can make a lot of sense. And I interviewed that company, and in Australia, they also had a lot of regulatory hurdles that he said it took years to jump through. And in the U.S., it's just like you said, having to have that USDA inspection, it costs a lot. It costs about $40,000 to get USDA inspection. And then the question is, can we even create 
a portable slaughter facility that is capable of receiving inspection based on all the regulations that USDA wants to see installed in that unit. Yep. And I assure you, there's lots of lobbyists who want to make sure it doesn't happen. Right. So, right. Know, the, mean, pri- yeah, they, the Prime Act is popular all of a sudden that, again. Everyone's talking yeah, about which Prime is great. Act. Which is great. I mean, I, I actually do feel like that there is a moment here where some of the problems of the system we have have been exposed. And, and I hope we can, all those of us who are interested in changing the system can band together and help drive some change. So it's a whole bunch of stuff to tackle. Um, you've got to figure out where to, where to go first and, and who, you know, part of what we want to do is find the people who are passionate about these things and going after it and help accelerate them, give them capital and make things happen and, and add value where we can. We certainly don't think we're the, the folks that are going to solve all these problems. I mean, we are a tiny new entrant who's learning as we go and, and we want to join up with all the people who are, who are already making a big difference. Yeah. Nick, what's it been for you as you've delved into this whole entire universe of regenerative agriculture, looking at startups from software as a service now in regenerative agriculture, any huge light bulb moments for you or huge learnings? Yeah, I think that the biggest learning for me is just finding where we fit in the equation. I think Lou said it really well where we're not going to come in and try and be the SME around regenerative agriculture and shake up the actual science behind it. I think it's how do we apply that technical know-how that we have background in and say, okay, if we're really good at delivering this technology or getting people onboarded to move them in the direction of regenerative, how do we do that that fits kind of our skill set, if you will. And I think that's been my biggest shakeup because typically when you you dive into a new industry, you want to try and soak up all that information and say, okay, how do I be the SME and really own this space? And I think in this instance, it's very much more of a partnership. It's who can we work with? Who can we leverage to say, look, we want to kind of help drive this movement. Here's the tool sets we have. How do we work together? And that's been an interesting and kind of really rewarding journey so far. And much needed too. You know, I think if you knew how few farmers had an actual business plan or how few farmers actually looked at some of the logistics and operation pieces, it's, it's kind of horrifying, I think, in some areas. So, I mean, I think it's a very needed partnership. I think my favorite story so far is we were talking with the rancher about how they do their, their grazing plans. And we're like, hey, how do you, we want to move you to pasture map? And they say, oh, the last time I submitted this to NRCS, it was on a pizza box. Like I just yeah. was, I ordered pizza one night and kind of wrote it out. And I was like, oh my, like, so it's just, it's a very interesting kind of mindset shift where they're like, oh, I'm so excited we can do this now because before I just kind of just jot it down or I couldn't track it. So I think there's, there's benefits on both sides for sure. You know, I guarantee you that farmer knows exactly where that pizza box is though. Yeah, right. like, it's chaotic, <laughs> right. but it's, it's organized yeah. chaos. And that's, you know, largely how we do a lot of our record keeping. I work with some farmers who are maybe not as bought in yet to some of these technological advancements like pasture map. And that's, we do record keeping on a clipboard. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's just, it's the way you do things. That's right. And that's okay too. <laughs> no, it, no, it drives me nuts. Cause then it's, it's, got it's covered in manure and filth. Like it's just, no, I'm yeah. trying to push us into new models of operating. So as you look for startups, do you have any idea what kinds of companies you're going to be interested in looking at? Are you looking at everything in the supply chain or do you have a particular area of focus to start with? And is it all startups as well that you want to be investing in? And are you always going to acquire them outright or are you going to be making, you know, minority or majority equity investments as well? We're open to all things. And so I don't think we will make all majority. We we ended up buying 100% of Pasture Map and that was the right answer at the right time. And we can talk about how we got to know Christine and how that, that unfolded. That made sense in this case. Our background is software and we're passionate about regenerative. So we, we are, I think, 
you know, and I think Christine would agree, we're, we're good folks to take it to the next level and we're excited about it. But we're looking at making small investments, helping startups, maybe even helping passionate founders get going, maybe even partnering with and helping more mature companies. And I really do think it can be across, across the board. We are actually really interested in the consumer demand problem and education problem, because I, I actually think that the farmers educating each other on these techniques is, is growing quite a bit. I think if farmers saw in their grocery aisles more things that said regenerative, they would really start responding and they would shift to these models faster. But the demand's not there. And so I think that's an area where we, we are interested in potentially making sure some things happen. I would also say we talked about processing, but that's one that we are very, very interested in. And it's very capital intensive. And we're trying to figure out how that might happen going forward. And so anyone who's working on those things, we'd love to talk to you and, and hear more about it and see if maybe we can help. Great. Great. I was also going to ask, I mean, how many potential co-investors are out there for, for you guys? This is quite a, a new model. I think we've seen a few that are focused in regenerative agriculture, but maybe not quite so specifically or quite so broadly as you. You know, that's often something that um, VCs across agri-food tech find challenging is, is having other co-investors that will back companies. Yeah. How is that being? Well, we'll, yeah, I mean, well, we'll find out. We don't know yet. We're pretty early on. We are a little bit naively, potentially optimistic about how important regenerative is going to be. And the word just isn't quite out yet, uh, but we think it's going to get there. And I do think that the number of ESG funds that, that are out there that are really looking for ways to make a meaningful impact on climate in particular is growing in the amount of capital that wants to get deployed in creative ways to solve climate issues. So I think that there's going to be plenty of capital if you can find real business models. I mean, one of the, we had a real debate about should we should we make SoilWorks a 501c3 nonprofit? And we decided against it. We're a public benefit corporation. And I assure you, we're going to m- mostly lose money in the early days. And, but yet, we've realized that if you can't build sustainable, scalable business models, the thing won't go mainstream. You can't just go looking for handouts. You've got you've to give value to the customer and to everyone in the value chain if you want to make it go mainstream. And so... We think it's imperative for us to figure out how we can make it something that can be profitable so then everyone in the ecosystem can be profitable. I mean, if farmers can't make money, we're not going to have farmers. I mean, it's just, it's just not going to work. And so if processors can't make money, it's not going to work. So we got to figure out ways where people can make a living and build businesses. And so we're looking for different places where we need some innovation there and where we can uniquely help. Yeah, let's talk about Pasture Map a little bit. How did you come across that startup and and what kind of led you to your final decision to, to buy him? I got to know a farmer nearby here, a guy named Travis Krause on Parker Creek Ranch. And he's a regenerative farmer. He's been doing it in Texas, South Texas, for about 10 years. And he used Pasture Map. And as I was getting my grazing going, I needed some tool. And you know, here I am in the city. You can see me in the city. I like to see where the cows are being moved every day. So it was something that like, I sort of liked understanding what was going on. And so I started using Pasture Map. And as we got into it, I just felt it had a ton of potential. I got to know Christine and asked if she wanted investment or how we could help. And over time, I just kept kind of hounding her and saying, we would love to do more with it. You know, I think Christine had been at the business. They'd been at it for what, Nick, five, six years? Yeah, about that. And they'd taken it as far as they really felt they could take it. And over time, we got to know each other. And she realized that we really weren't sort of just trying to 
get a software company and milk it. We really wanted to invest in it. And we really were passionate about regenerative. And the fact that I was a real customer doing real things with the software every day really built a lot of trust. And look, I think we're living up to it. I mean, we've expanded the staff. We started to roll out features. We think there's just a lot more that can be done to make energy and land much easier with your herds. And, you know, Nick's been doing a great job uh, really getting things going. So we've only owned it for about a month, but hopefully customers are seeing a difference and they're going to see a lot more because we're very committed to it. And, and look, we think it's a great foundational tool. If we're going to be in the regenerative space, we want to get as many regenerative farmers using it and figure out how else we can help them. I mean, it's a way for us to have contact with them and say, how else can we help you? What other problems are you facing every day? And we can have that direct dialogue with people. So it's, a, it's just a great foundational investment for us as we get going. Do you know how many customers are on the platform, the Pasture Map platform right now? About 200 customers and then about 2,000 users. Great. So, but we've got, we've got a, those are paid customers. You know, I mean, we yep. get trial users and we are looking at doing a free plan to try and give good basic functionality to farmers that can't afford to pay anything. So we, we really want to try and get that number much larger. Yeah. yeah. What are some of the challenges to scaling that Pastor Map has been encountering or that you're seeing now that you are at the helm? A couple of things. One of the biggest things is honestly just getting our ranchers more comfortable with switching to a digital platform. A lot of the, the customers we're talking to now are saying, look, I'm in the trial, I'm doing independent paper, and it's just a learning experience. So I think we're the first thing you're going to see aside from when the new features are rolling out is a much kind of more intuitive onboarding experience. So once you start a trial, it's just a lot easier to get your ranch up and going. It's easier to get your land in. It's easier to add more animal features and just really solving that tech barrier. A lot of our customers are not as familiar with technology. They're kind of a little higher in age range, so they're just not used to having that platform every day. So I think solving that is going to be a, a big hurdle. And that's kind of our first undertaking. And that's, that's really been the, the biggest pushback is we have hundreds of trials set up every month. And they're like, look, here's my hurdles. How do I get through it? Um, so I think as soon as we crack that, the growth is going to be exceptionally higher. Yeah. I mean, you talked about profitability earlier. Just what to ask, you know, is pasture map profitable? How are you making money? What is the business model? It is not profitable. We're investing in the business. So it's just not big enough to, to be profitable if we're going to actually put development time on it and really uh, have it reach its potential. So, you know, we got to take that 200 farms to 2,000 farms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's going to take the movement growing too. But we have belief in it. And so we plan on investing and, and continue to make it better. And we also think that there could be other additional, I mean, there's a lot of functionality. You know, there's not great inventory management functionality in there. There's not good tracking of soil tests and things like that. So there's a lot of other places where we think we can add value and maybe get a little bit of incremental revenue. So, you know, we we think of it as truly a startup, even though it's been around for five years. And it's a great, great foundational tool, but there's a long way to go. And and we plan on investing in it. Thinking about your work at Scaleworks, you know, obviously the completely different industries, but thinking about how you model the companies and the investments that you make. How have you managed to make kind of some comparisons or try to predict how that would look in a few years' time? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, it's it's easy with Pasture Map because Pasture Map looks and feels like a lot of our other companies. I mean, it is a software as a service tool that we know very well, and so we can run a playbook on on it pretty well. But when we the customer acquisition is just so different. Very good point. We'll give you one example that we came across that the old team had had annual plans only. So you had to pay for a year in advance. 
And that's a big decision for a farmer. So if it's a $50 tool, you know, a month, that's a $600 decision. Well, a $600 decision is a big decision for most farmers. And yet paying it every month and seeing how it works is much easier. That's something that sort of I know having just talked to lots of farmers. And so like that was one of the first things we did, sort of say, look, you pay monthly if you want to. And we also know that we need to get a lower price plan for people, even though it might not have as much functionality. So you are right. It is a very different buyer. They think about things very differently. They're not generally as tech savvy. And that is a learning process for us. But it's really going to be different when we get to things like building consumer products or looking at the abattoir economics or doing financing for farms. The math is just going to look very different than it does in the software world. The margins are much lower. The payback times are much longer. But there's also a lot more certainty in things that happen. So it's a trade-off. So we're adjusting to that. I, I think we've got a lot to learn. And we're, we're going to stub our toe, I'm sure. We'll make a bunch of mistakes and figure it out as we go. Yeah, I'm sure once you show a farmer the value it adds, like once you show them how much more capable it is than a pizza box, I think that's probably at least an easy conversion when they finally see, oh, okay, this can do a lot for me. To Nick's point, though, you know, there's nothing more flexible than pen and paper. Because you can do put anything you want on that pen and paper. And, you know, if the software has one little weird thing where it doesn't do it the way you like to do it, people go, ah, I can't yeah, do it. So, work. yeah. So, I mean, like, for example, we had, I mean, Lauren sounds like you run a farm or you have experience with farms. I mean, you know, if you move animals, your paddocks are not identical every time you go through them. And sometimes you can make big changes to the paddock uh, layout. And, you know, it was very difficult to make changes to your paddock layout and pasture map. And, like, even for me, it's kind of a, kind of a really frustrating point because, you know, in the spring, the paddocks look different than they do in the winter. It's just, they yeah. just do them differently. These kinds of things, you've got to really get your head in what the farmers are living and breathing and how you can make it to where they don't hit one piece of frustration where they go, hey, I'm going back to that paper. You know, right. so it's, it, it can be challenging. Yeah, my grazing plan changes about every 10 minutes some days. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> that's the way it goes. So switching gears a bit, the World Resource Institute put out a pretty massive report recently where they looked at the opportunity in regenerative agriculture and tried to measure what is the feasibility, not just the possibility, but feasibility of some of these practices geared towards carbon sequestration. And I don't know if you followed it all, but it's created a huge, huge discourse now in the regenerative ag community. There's lots of back and forth, listservs, posts. Have you followed that at all? And, and if you have, do you have any thoughts on the conclusions in that report? So I'm not an expert on it. There's some Facebook groups I've seen some commentary on it. It wasn't as optimistic as most farmers think. Is that right? Right. Yeah, I guess I should say the conclusion. So they, they essentially said that based on all their research and their statistic modeling, that the promise of regenerative agriculture is a bit overstated in terms of the amount of carbon it can actually sequester. And, and that's largely what they looked at, carbon sequestration potential. Yeah. You know, I've read lots of the studies. There's been academic studies on the carbon potential. And I think that I, I need to go read the report in detail. Carbon is, the carbon sequestration potential is one of the big theses of our model. And so I know there is potential there. How big it is, we got we to we gotta figure it out. But I think that the idea that soil is the largest carbon sink in the world is somewhat undisputed. And the fact that the practices we're using right now are destroying soil at an alarming rate is undisputed. And so the potential, if you can rebuild soil, which I am confident you can rebuild soil, I've seen it done, I'm confident the potential is very large. And, you know, as long as it's a niche movement, it won't matter. 
But I think it's very large. We do have to have more science behind it to really understand it. I mean, look, I think you can go find studies. Tree planting has, has been forever accepted as a carbon sequestration tool. I think you can find lots of studies that can dispute that, depending on where you plant the trees, what it does to the underlying grass ecosystem, how long they're left there, how close they are to each other, what other, you know, there's tons of factors to all these things. So all these are complex problems. And I think regeneratives, you know, in terms of getting a definitive answer of what it does, I think it's going to, it's always going to be complicated. But my confidence that you can sequester serious carbon in the soil is very high. And I've read enough smart people who have done academic work on it to feel confident of it. I do think we have to validate it and we got to get some consensus. You know, I mean, any process that takes a long, long time is very hard to validate from the microchemistry level and the biology level. We know that organic matter goes up. We know that water retention goes up. And we do know that mass increases, that you actually can build soil. And that is fundamentally carbon. So anyway, we'll see how it goes, but I remain optimistic. Great. Regenerative organic label from Rodell. Do you think that as this movement grows and there's still a lot of conversation about what regenerative is or isn't, do you think labels regulation, do you think that kind of oversight is going to be needed and beneficial or would you rather see this be more of a holistic, free-flowing type movement? I'm open to both models. I tend to lean towards something not so regulated and with one body determining exactly how things should be done. You know, I think organic, any one of these uh, standards ends up being abused in some way and people find ways around it that defeat the spirit and the purpose of it. And so I would just be very hesitant to have very strict guidelines around it. I would rather look at things like, can you provide transparency to the soil testing and to things like the grazing plans? And and can you prove that you're actually doing the things that create regenerative outcomes? But you know, we're early on in this and, and we are going to have to, regenerative is going to have to mean something to people. And I'm just a little nervous about getting too rigid too fast. And you know, I think tying it to organic, I, I think, you know, I'm not a student of that particular issue, but I, I'm a little nervous about it. And I'm generally more of it's too early to do that. And I think we should be very careful about it and be very careful about who we give the power of determining exactly what it is. To me, it's a matter of, do you not use chemicals? Do you not use, you know, pesticides? And are you building soil? And there's lots of ways to do that. And you can only do it with real diversity, plant animal diversity, and using no-till techniques and having lots of diversity. So I think there's some basic principles that you can prove you're doing and the soil won't lie in terms of what the soil health. What about consumer communication though? Because you, you mentioned that, you said, you know, in the grocery aisle, having something that consumers can relate to or understand, you know, to me, an idea of regenerative organic seems like an appealing label and something that consumers could get behind. And sure, yeah. there's those flaws. But how do you think we do that communication piece? I think a really big struggle for regenerative agriculture is that it's very, very complicated. It's a yeah. combination of practices. It's no silver bullet. And how do you communicate that? What the anti-meat lobby has done so well is communicating very, very simply. Meat bad, plants good, essentially. And what regenerative agriculture is like, well, this is good in this situation and this is good in that situation. It's a communication nightmare. You know, what do you think is a potential solution there? Or you know, what are you thinking about in that? Obviously, that's a massive question. 
but one different. Right, well, by the way, I think it's a fantastic question and at the root of the problem. And in fact, for a long time, we had debates internally about is regenerative even the right word? It's a big word. It's complicated. It evokes something very different in all sorts of people when they first hear it. We had some nervousness about the word. I think we've settled on it and we sort of want to support that word because it is growing in momentum. And even people like Whole Foods are saying regenerative foods are one of the big trends that are headed our way. I think you're right. It's going to take a lot of education. It's going to take a lot of support from marketing. And I I just don't think there's a way around a long education process, quite honestly. And you're going to need big brands to emerge that do it. I don't think the farmer's market is going to be enough. I think you're going to have to have big brands who are saying, this is a whole new way of doing it. And it's going to create better food. It's actually going to help the planet. And I will tell you, I think Beyond Meat and Impossible, I'm extremely biased. I think it's going to, it's the margarine of meat to me. In the long run, we're going to realize that it's none of the things it promises. It's not good for you and it's not good for the planet. And I think it's a major, major problem. And yet they've done a phenomenal job of marketing. I give them great credit. I admire them and respect them for the marketing they've done. But I don't think it's genuine and sincere. And I am nervous about its success. But I think giving people a great alternative meat where it gives all the benefits they're, they're talking about, I think, I think people are going to flock to that if we can prove it to them. Well, that is a great place to end. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much. I think we probably could have carried on for another hour, but um, you know, great to, to meet you both. Great to hear about Soilworks. I hope lots of companies that think they're relevant will reach out to you potentially for investment. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you guys. I appreciate what y'all are doing and uh, hope to talk to y'all soon. Yeah, thanks so much. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Burwood-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.